Have you ever heard of the expression, love is blind? Heard of that? Love is blind. Um, And this morning we're going to be talking about romantic love, living for the Lord, whether single or married. Now, falling in love has a power to it. Um, In fact, Everybody who falls in love thinks that the situation is absolutely and completely unique to them. No one has ever felt like I have felt, when in fact, it's a fairly common experience. There are physiological changes that happen to a person who falls in love. I know because I read it on the internet. There's a life coach, I don't know anything about her, by the name of Samantha Benigno, but she uh, wrote an article about the four things that happen to you when you fall in love. Uh, First, love acts like an addictive drug working in precisely the same area of your brain as cocaine. Uh, Love is hard to forget. It means that even if it's been two decades since your last drink or drug, the body hasn't forgotten it and will in no time return to an addictive relationship with the substance if you go back to it. And this helps to explain why is it that people will go back to such an abusive and horrible relationship. Third, love goes through every goes through a crazy cycle. It causes an increase in stress hormones, depleting the body of neurotransmitters in the same way that cocaine-fueled night may do so. It feeds the obsessive, uncontrollable, illogical thoughts that make you feel like a crazy person. We see that played out in the Bible, actually, in Judges. Do you remember Samson falls in love with a woman from Timnah, and he says to his parents, get her for me as a wife. I'm in love with her. And, of course, his parents say, can't you marry an Israelite? No, I want her. And, of course, it turns out disastrously. Lastly, love blinds us to facts. It turns out There's a real neurological reason why when we love someone, it takes an awful lot of bad experiences to let them go. There's neural machinery at work making critical assessments of other people, including assessments of those with whom we're romantically involved that shut down. And all of that is behind the ancient wisdom, love is blind. It's very difficult to persuade someone otherwise once they are in love. A number of years ago, I had a very dear friend that fell in love with someone that was a very deceitful person. Nearly everyone around them saw it. And I, whether I was wise enough or stupid enough, I approached the person to say, dear friend, you're headed in the wrong way. And it resulted in the end of our relationship. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. We're going to be looking 
at refreshing our priorities of living for the Lord whether we are married or single. Whether we are married or single, living for the Lord. And it's precisely here that we need to understand that uh, something that I quoted from a couple of weeks ago from Erwin Lutzer, I got it from him, but I think it goes way before him. I can't track down who it was. That marriage is like flies on a screen door. Those on the inside want to get out, and those on the outside want to get in. And there is something about that in all of us that some of you are married and going, oh man, I wish... I had married a different person, or I wasn't married, or why is marriage so hard, or any of those. And some of you are single going, if only I were married, then everything would be wonderful. Paul wants us to refresh our priorities of living for Jesus rather than living to be married or to be single. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 through 40. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife." But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Uh, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord." If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better." A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Please have a seat. In the first few verses, we have kind of the big point, live for the Lord 
instead of trying to change your marital status. Live for the Lord rather than the thought that I need to be out of my particular status I'm in, married or not. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt on this word that's translated in the English Standard Version, betrothed. It literally means virgins. Uh, And there's three kind of main views about this. I'll give you the last one last because that's the one that's right. No. Uh, view number one is the idea of giving, it's, it's about a father and debating whether or not he should give his virgin daughters in marriage. You remember this phrase, now concerning, relates to questions that the Corinthian church had written to Paul, and now Paul is writing back to the church at Corinth with his answers. And so there's some question about these virgins, and the question is, who's being addressed? And one view says it's about fathers who are concerned about marrying off their daughters. The whole idea of marriage in an immoral, hostile world. A second view is that what was happening at Corinth was men and women were living together without physical intimacy in what they termed a spiritual marriage. Now, this actually was a practice that happened among Christians between the 2nd and 5th centuries. However, there's no evidence that it was happening in the 1st century or at Corinth, so I don't think that that's the best view. The third view, which by the way is not without its problems, okay, so I could end up in heaven and go, oops, I was wrong, right? By the way, aren't you glad the Lord uses people who are wrong? Because if it were not so, the Lord would not use any of us. Sometimes we wonder, why is it that God uses people? They know, I know they're wrong about that. Well, God uses wrong people. <laughs> At any rate, this betrothed, I think, is women who with their fiancés are wondering whether or not to go through with marriage in view of the present circumstances. I think it makes the best um, conformity to all of the data in verses 25 to 40. Now, Paul wants to add here in verse 25 that he, the Lord Jesus himself didn't teach about this. And Paul wants to answer the question, but he's going to answer it with advice rather than with a command. In the earlier section in, in chapter 7, he, he didn't give just advice. He gave commands as an apostle. But here he's going to say, I am going to give my best counsel about this. I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. God's granted me mercy to have insight here, and I believe it's trustworthy. I want to give you my best advice on the matter. Verse 26, in view of the present distress, um, this word present could mean impending. So whether it's immediate right now or about to happen, the idea is that there's a crisis, a necessity. The difficulties of life now in a hostile world since Jesus has gone back to heaven 
The point that Paul wants to make is in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Stay put. Don't go looking for marital change thinking that that will make you happy or fulfill you. Now, he hastens to add in verse 28 that marriage is not wrong. If you marry, you have not sinned, and most people, in fact, do marry. Proverbs 18.22 is a beautiful proverb, and remember, proverbs are proverbs. That is, they are maxims that are mostly true in the general course of life, not universally true in every case. Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So, marriage is not wrong, but look at the last sentence of verse 28. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I love how the, I think it's the New International Version that puts it, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you that. There are many troubles associated with being married. Some of you who are married can say, yeah, I know those. Some of you who are single would go, I, I have no idea about that. All I can think about is how wonderful it will be if I get married. Well, let me just share with you some of the troubles that you will face. First, and this is the one that is the first and most important, but it is the one that you think of last, you will sin against your spouse. That's the first trouble you will have in marriage. You will discover with horror just how sinful you are, and you are sinning against and creating pain and distress and hardship on the person you love the most in all the world. You will sin against your wife. You will sin against your husband. Second problem is like unto it, they will sin against you. You will be wounded like you'd never known. Thirdly, there will be communication and conflict issues. You will look at the person that you have married and you go, what, what happened here? I don't understand. And they go, oh, I don't understand you either. <laughs> and then there's conflicts where you find that you come up against problems and you just, it's a hard way to figure out how to resolve them. Then there are family troubles where throw in some of these issues of sinning against one another and communication and conflict and then run off to mom or dad to solve those, right? Isn't that a good plan? No, it isn't. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. But all too often, families, the larger family dynamic gets involved. It creates even more troubles. And then there's life goal troubles. 
where one person had a passion for one area of life goals and another person had a passion for another area of life goals. I had a very dear couple friend of Carol and mine that before they got married, the husband imagined their life as having no children. And the wife imagined their life together as having as many children as they could possibly have. And they never talked about it before they got married. Do you think that might have created a little tiny problem? There's financial troubles where each person has differences of opinion about where to lay their best priorities. And then, of course, there's the problems where there's never enough money for everything that you want to do. And so the issues of debt, the issues of uh, figuring out what to do with nothing, I'll tell a little funny story here on myself. I, <laughs> when we first got married, I, we kind of figured out, okay, we should put it, be on a budget. Only I didn't know. I did not know how to budget stuff very well. And the things that I budgeted for Carol to spend money on were, was not even close to enough. It wasn't even close. But I'm asking her, kind of like the Egyptians did the Israelites, to make bread or bricks without straw, right? What a, you know? So, I had a little bag of coins that I had collected in my closet. And um, Carol knew that wheat pennies and buffalo head nickels, those were really valuable. So she didn't spend any of those. Whenever she needed some money, she would take some dimes and quarters. They were silver dimes and quarters, and just kind of spent them at a time when silver was at its all-time high. Imagine my horror when I opened the closet to kind of check my coin collection out and see that the, <laughs> like it's empty. <laughs> um, that was not her problem. That was mine and a huge failure to communicate. We learned a good lesson there. A pretty cheap lesson as it turned out. There's children troubles, having them or not having them, raising them, launching them, relating to them. There's material troubles, how much stuff to have. Usually in a couple there's one saver and one tosser. And heaven forbid if the tosser gets a hold of the saver's stuff. There's trouble figuring out what do you need. One person says, we need this. The other person says, we do not need this. There's medical troubles. And as you age, you will discover more and more of those, right? However... Think of young Josh and Brittany Bannister. That was not a trouble that they anticipated. There's intimacy troubles of all sorts, emotional and physical. And then there are scheduling troubles. Just trying to get on the same page with your life is sometimes excruciatingly difficult. It, this is why when I conduct my first premarital counseling session, I read this sentence to the couple, 
those who marry will have worldly troubles and that the whole goal of premarital counseling is to identify these various categories of troubles and to give tools not for eliminating the trouble. You will have troubles. But for how to deal with the troubles, not if, but when they come. These troubles are not just because one person is good and another person is evil, though that can happen. They are not because one is right and another is wrong, though that can be true, but heaven forbid the person who always thinks they're right. (laughs) They are not because one plan is better than another, though there are plans that are better than others. The reason for the troubles is because marriage in a sin-cursed world is guaranteed to have troubles, many troubles. And so, in the next few verses, Paul gives two reasons why we should live for the Lord as our first priority, the refreshing of our priority, instead of living for trying to change our marital status. Verses 29 to 31, he says there's a radical rethinking that is necessary for the believer regarding marital status. Focusing on marriage tempts us to pay too much attention to this passing world. There's a temptation when we're married to pay too much attention, myopically so. That just means without any reflection on the fact that there's way bigger fish to fry. Too much attention on this passing world. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers, The the appointed time has grown very short. The time very short could mean the time to make a difference for God in one's individual life is very short, and that's true. Our life is a vapor. It could also mean that taking into account the present distress of the Christ follower's worldview, which is so opposed to the pagan worldview, and recognize that everything that needs to happen for the events of the end of the world to begin has already occurred, and that means that some radical reordering of our life needs to happen. Either way… Paul is exhorting his brothers and sisters at Corinth to live with the end in view, a radical rethinking that isn't just about, well, who do I like? Well, I like you. You like me? Let's get married and have some fun. More than that, we live for Christ and for His glory. Those who have wives, verse 29, should live as though they had none. Paul is not saying to separate if you're married. He's not saying that marriage won't bring some interference with your life for Christ. But he is saying that if a believer is married today, you should factor in eternity, the nearness of the end of your own life, and the nearness of the end of time, and live for Christ rather than concentrating solely on your marriage. Those who mourn, he says in verse 30, as though they are not mourning. Paul's not saying to be stoic, like Spock on Star Trek. He's simply saying that a believer who mourns needs to factor in the nearness of his own death, the nearness of the end of time, rather than concentrate solely on his feelings at the moment of mourning. 
those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Paul's not saying we can't rejoice. He's simply saying that a rejoicing believer needs to factor in the nearness of the end of his own life and the nearness of the end of time rather than concentrate solely on rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Paul's not saying that we can't buy stuff. He's saying that the believing consumer, as he goes about his commerce, needs to factor in the nearness of the end of his own life and the nearness of the end of time rather than concentrate solely on buying and selling stuff. In the end, whether you got a good deal on a coupon or on Facebook Marketplace is not going to matter <laughs> compared to knowing Christ and loving Him. Finally, he says in verse 31, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Paul's not saying that we shouldn't have dealings with the world. He's saying that the believer in the world needs to factor the nearness of the end of his own life and the nearness of the end of time rather than concentrate on his dealings in the world. Why? Why should we do all that? Why should those who marry live as though they had none? Those who mourn is not mourning. Those who rejoice is not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they were not involved in commerce. Those who deal in the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? Why? Look at the end of verse 31. For the present form of this world is passing away. It's a vapor. Even the things we cherish the most in this life are passing away. It's dying. It's happening right now. We don't always see it, but sometimes, once in a while, particularly when really bad things happen to us, we see it very clearly, don't we? That we live in a sin-cursed world. Paul wants us to see this all the time. All the time we note that the world in its present form is passing away. The Apostle John said something similar in 1 John 2, didn't he? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh or the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So for the, from the standpoint of the married person, we should live for the Lord rather than for a marital status. Focusing on marriage tempts us to pay too much attention to this passing world. Now in verses 32 to 35, Paul gives the advantages of singleness, and he's giving a second reason for living for the Lord rather than for a marital status, and this time it's for unmarried folks, that we should be as free from worldly anxieties as we possibly can so that we can make as big an impact for Christ as we possibly can. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. Now, the problem is that most single Christians do not do this. 
Single Christians tend to obsess, many of them, I won't say all, but many of them tend to obsess about marriage and relationships. They're worried about it, almost obsessively so, thinking about how can I figure out how I got to find the right person? How do I know if the person is right? When will I know? How does it happen? And then it's also true that single Christians can tend toward immature living. That is, they're not really interested in getting married. This is an increasing problem, by the way, among Christians. Uh, Not so much interested in getting married as much as having the best time that they possibly can at the moment. Either way, obsessing about marriage and relationships or tending toward immature living, Paul is saying that the single person needs to focus on the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Focus on that, living for the Lord rather than for a marital status. Now, in verses 33 and 34, Paul tells us that marriage by its very nature pushes our interests into this passing world's concerns. He says, the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. Uh, Bottom of verse 34, the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And so you're worried about things like decent housing and food and transportation and the children and their training and their education and care and anxieties and troubles inside us and our partner of how we relate. The interests are divided. Where they do not have to be divided if a person is single. Notice the exact exact parallel here. In the text, the married man has to think about worldly things, how to please his wife. The married woman has to think about worldly things, how to please her husband. It's undeniable and unavoidable. Paul, in verse 35, is not saying these things as a command. He's not saying, I'm commanding singleness. He's not saying them as a restriction against marriage. I say this for your own benefit, he says, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your, listen to this, undivided devotion to the Lord. So now we come to verses 36 to 40. It is good to marry. It is better to be single in Paul's judgment. And he gives three situations here. Verse 36 gives situation number one, where the man wants to marry his betrothed. Notice the three conditions. If a man feels that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed by not marrying. If he is physically mature and his passions are strong. If he feels it has to be. Notice how much the feelings are involved here. Paul's not so high-minded as to ignore the place of human feelings or even the work of the brain chemistry we talked about at the beginning of the message. He says if those things are true, then he should do as he desires and marry his betrothed, do as he wishes. And then it says, notice this, this is an interesting phrase that I think helps us shape our interpretation of what this word virgins or betrothed means. Let them marry. That is, the community should not hinder them. 
The them here is a critical component to understanding that this is not about a father and his virgin daughter. Apparently, there may have been in Corinth some people who were so involved in aesthetic living, ascetic living, that they were trying to convince people against their will not to marry. But Paul says, no, no, let them marry. It is no sin. That's situation number one. Verse 37 is situation number two. The man is settled in his own mind not to marry his betrothed. Notice what it says. Whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, and he doesn't have any necessity to marry, he has his desire under control, he has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well, that is, not to marry. Now, this seems weird, at least to me, to keep a person as betrothed but not married, but every view I've looked at of this text has this problem of trying to understand that. He will do well, and so verse 38 is the conclusion, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Finally, we come to verses 39 and 40, situation number three, a married woman whose husband then dies. These are all apparently questions that the Corinthians had asked Paul, and he's giving them uh, his answers. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to remarry another man, whom she wishes, only in the Lord. I can't emphasize this enough, that if you're trying to have your priority be living for the Lord rather than for your marital status, how important is it then that if you do marry, you marry someone who shares equally your passion for Christ? There are a lot of people who get married and uh, they marry a person who's not a Christian. There are a lot of people who marry, and the person tells them that they're a Christian, and they know the right words to say, but they aren't really a Christian. This is why it is so important for single people not just to say, hey, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Yes, okay, we're all good, because I'm in love, but that you find out that the person shares your passion for knowing Christ and loving Him, and walking with Him. And so this widow is free to remarry another man, but he must belong to the Lord. By the way, I do want to say that this idea of falling in love doesn't just happen to young adults. It happens in remarriages or marriage later in life. And the brain chemistry isn't any different. They are just as silly and foolish, just as blind. With this laser focus, "Ah, you like Snickers, I like Snickers, let's get married, you know. Um, And I have had to counsel people where a woman married after her husband had died and the man took all of her money and she was completely impoverished. Or people who marry and then they turn out to be 
horrific step-parents. Absolutely horrific. Or people who have pretended faith and then you marry them and you discover they have absolutely no interest in the things of the Lord. So Paul's judgment in verse 40 In my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Not as a command, but as counsel. So let's think about some applications here. First, singleness, Paul is advocating singleness here, not on moral grounds. It's not about what's moral and immoral. He's advocating it on eschatological grounds. That is, in view of the fact that the end of this world is coming, coming soon, then we ought to think about this whole thing of marriage and not marriage. There's no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. There was a time in church history when people were thought of as second-class who were married, and the really spiritual people were not married. Today, All too often, single adults are thought of and treated as second class, as somehow less mature, somehow less adult. The real failure is for all of us to live life in view of our own mortality and to live all of life with the end of the world in view. Let me just give you one little example. Why, for example, Do we find it easy to make fun of Roman Catholics for mandating single priests when the practical fact is that among Protestants, we really in actuality are mandating married pastors? That to me is a scandal. We would not have accepted the Apostle Paul or Jesus as a pastor. Second application, neither singleness nor marriage is a superior spiritual status, but singleness can be a superior status for the one who embraces it. It can be an inferior status if one is simply being selfish or scared, or if all they're thinking about is, I got to get married, I got to get married, I got to get married. It's an inferior status then. Marriage can be a superior status if the goal is serving and subsuming all of your interests and all of your drive and all of the things you want underneath the serving of your partner. And if your love for one another is ever renewing, marriage can be a beautiful and even superior status. The issue is living for Christ rather than for one's marital status. Thirdly, the Christian community ought to accept and affirm single adults fully. And this is true whether they are single and never married or have been widowed or divorced. We need to acknowledge that marriage is not the default position, but rather we ought to welcome believers in Jesus who are fully passionate for serving and living for Christ into the Christian community. And then lastly, rather than, and this is, I'm going to speak now to people who are contemplating getting married someday. 
A lot of times people who want to get married are thinking, how will I know? How will I find the right person? And did you know that there are books that are written that will tell you? Uh, they, will, they will give you a handbook for how to do this, and they become bestsellers. And there have been hundreds of them over the centuries. One of the latest ones was the courtship thing with Josh Harris, right? Um, let me just tell you if you're thinking about this idea, well, how will I know? Rather than getting focused on the rules or the methods of finding a life partner, Paul's advice is that we focus on the glory of God and on the joy of knowing Christ. That's what goes so wrong with courtship, marriage, or any of the hundreds of so-called biblical methods of finding a spouse that have been trotted out over the centuries. Be God's man. Be God's woman. And the marrying part, while it does have some methodology in every culture, should be far, far down the list of Christian priorities. I am convinced that white-hot worshipers find God's will. Living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please Him in all that I do, yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free, this is the pathway of blessing for me. Heavenly Father, please, Renew our minds by your Holy Spirit to pursue you more than pursuing our marital status. May we love you with a single-mindedness that is really a reflective of revival. That's what happens in genuine revival. All that matters is God. May it be so among us. Lord, for marriages here that are faced with many troubles, would you bless them and keep them and heal them and love on them, Lord? And those that are single, help them to see that they are not in an inferior status. Help them not to live selfishly for themselves, but to seek your face, be your man and your woman. And Lord, if there's anyone who's never put their faith in Christ, help them to see that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that they would say, Lord, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. Give me your eternal life that you promise through forgiveness of sins in Christ. And then, Lord, help me know how to walk in this very short life I have in view of the end of time that is right at the door. May it be so, dear Lord, that we would refresh our priorities. In Jesus' name, amen.